Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 598 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 16th of January 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Rishi Dastidar about aspects of poetry, where ideas come from and how to shape them into a poem, how the traditional publishing process works for poetry, aspects of performance and marketing, and also how the poetry scene here in the UK has been enlivened by poets of colour. There are lots of wonderful thoughts about creativity and creative process in this interview, And I particularly enjoyed it as I was at Oxford with Rishi in the 90s. (laughs) We haven't, we've kind of been Facebook friends, but we haven't really stayed in touch. So it was great to catch up with him. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news. So the Alliance of Independent Authors blog at selfpublishingadvice.org has an interesting article on what readers want in 2022. It has loads of detail and some great graphics, so you can check it out. Links in the show notes as ever. But a couple of things I noticed. So once again, a big focus on print sales as they continue to grow. So remember to get your print on demand versions done this year. But it also notes that ebook sales have stalled. Now, that doesn't mean to me, certainly, that ebook reading has stalled. What it does seem to indicate is that subscription models are taking a bigger share, and that might include things like Kindle Unlimited, things like Scribd, libraries, uh, and also things like direct sales of ebooks through Payhip, like I use, um, Shopify, Patreon, Kickstarter, Substack, where people are now serializing books, and also the other serial platforms, things like Kindle Vela, where a lot of authors are selling digital digitally now. So when you read uh, see stats that say uh, ebook sales are dropping or um, ebook sales have stalled then remember that if you only counted sales then yes that's true but that doesn't count all these other ways that ebook reading is not being measured and page reads and borrowing these things are just not counted so i don't know how we're ever going to get decent statistics on this <laughs> because most of those private platforms don't report to the services that do these articles but anyway just thought i'd mention it because so much of the media picks up it's like a downer on digital but it's just not true The article also notes that for readers, the book description is what's most important. When asked to rank the importance of several factors in choosing a book, says Written Word Media, 57% of readers surveyed said the book description was the most important factor. Next important was the price at 37% and the author at 23%. So that's really interesting to me. (laughs) And I'm really happy that I recently engaged Michael Brennan Collings from episode 591 to rewrite my fiction book descriptions. I'm currently updating them on the various platforms. So yeah, interesting that. Um, I think I've seen other surveys where the author is the sort of the first reason. But when I was thinking about my own behaviour, there are only a handful, like literally a five (laughs) authors whose books I will always buy. And I mean, almost always, like 90% of the time, uh, Jonathan Maybury would be one of those authors. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. There are lots of other authors who I'm aware of and I will try their books, but I won't necessarily always buy. Whereas if I see a book description, a cover and a book description or a title and a book description that makes me go, oh yeah, that's just for me, then I'll sample it regardless of the author. There are statistics about Asia, Africa, the US and Europe, and it's great to see such international numbers. I particularly liked this stat. Europeans are the world's biggest bookworms and spend at least one hour each day reading. Most households in the European Union spend more on books, newspapers and stationery than they do on package holidays. (laughs) 
I count myself as a European and that is certainly true in our house. I definitely spend most of my sort of uh, spare money on books and travel, (laughs) hence my other podcast. Right, in useful stuff, Mark Dawson's Ads for Authors course is open now. So if you want to reboot your sales in 2022 for fiction or nonfiction, then check it out at thecreativepen.com forward slash ads, just ADS, so thecreativepen.com forward slash ads. That is my affiliate link and you can support the show while uh, if you buy the course and no extra cost to you. So I've used Mark's course for Facebook ads in the past. He also has modules on Amazon ads, TikTok use. (laughs) and much more. And of course, Mark has made uh, significant amounts of money (laughs) from his books and uh, many of his students have done incredible things. I'm certainly revisiting it again because ads are my Achilles heel. You've probably heard me go back and forth on this over the years. I really want to change my attitude about them in 2022. And uh, yeah, again, you can support the show by checking Mark's Ads for Authors course out at my affiliate link, thecreativepen.com forward slash ads. And in futurist stuff. On AI writing and copyright, Orna Ross from the Alliance of Independent Authors and I recently worked on a submission to the UK government and we have just submitted a new clarification on copyright issues and data licensing, which is now posted on the Alliance blog at selfpublishingadvice.org. Links in the show notes. I know many authors are not interested and we've certainly not had much engagement from uh, other author communities and organisations. But uh, as you know, I think creatives have to be engaged with the developments in AI to make sure our voices are heard. So you can always go and read that submission. And uh, we're always interested to know what you think about these things. On NFTs, uh, the Creatokia podcast has an episode on the Creatokia approach, how we make NFTs exciting for the general public. It's a recent podcast episode. And of course, I had the founders, Jens and John, in episode 583. So if you have now heard enough about NFTs and uh, you're like, okay, I I have to start investigating that, then check that out. And what's interesting about this particular episode is that it goes into more detail on their platform, which is all about digital originals. And they intend, what was I think particularly interesting is that they want to make it mainstream in the reader community. So they're going to make digital originals available for sale in fiat or normal (laughs) currency, as well as on blockchain. So you will be able to buy and own a digital original without minting it on blockchain, which might help bridge the gap and get normal readers involved. And in fact, if you're listening and I'm hoping to do uh, my first limited edition drop at some point in the next few months, certainly in the first half of the year. So I think this is really interesting idea. The idea being that you could buy the digital limited edition and then you can mint it later on blockchain. But they are aiming for this to be a very sort of mainstream style portal with both options available. And that's the first I've heard of this type of option. Most of these digital original services are blockchain only. So you can find that on your podcast app. Just search for Creatokia, C-R-E-A-T-O-K-I-A. And if you're interested in the AI for voice narration, then uh, I've had a few episodes, but the VO Boss podcast has a load of great interviews with some of the biggest companies, as well as things like attitude to AI, ethics, legal issues, digital voice rights, and much more. If you just search VO Boss on your podcast app, you can look through the backlist for the episodes. And I'm so pleased about this because as I've mentioned, I've had quite a bit of backlash about my discussion on AI for voice, but this is the actual voice community diving deep into it. There really is no point in kind of ignoring it or pretending it's not coming. It's much better to embrace the opportunities and see where we can all expand our income streams, as I'm hopefully going to do by licensing my voice so I can or my digital self can narrate your audiobooks in the future if you fancy it. So uh, if you're interested in any of these topics, remember I have links at thecreativepen.com forward slash future, where um, if you're ready to embrace the future in 2022, there's lots to catch up on. 
in my personal update. So I am still editing Stone of Fire and I'm intending to do a full episode on lessons learned from editing my first novel over a decade later. (laughs) But it's certainly been eye-opening and Ah, so worthwhile. And it's there's so many things that are interesting. I think I've just been afraid of reading it. Seriously, I've been thinking about doing this edit for years, but I've been afraid. Um, I've been afraid of my data. I've been afraid of... I think my fiction means so much to me. I know many of you who write both fiction and nonfiction might understand this and probably memoir in the nonfiction space, but I feel like my fiction reveals so much more of me than my nonfiction does, although obviously I'm pretty honest with you guys and in my books. But... There's a lot of my raw self in my fiction. And I think, yeah, I was just scared of reading it again. And and I am editing a lot. And it's classic to see how much better my writing is now. I am able to read that book with a completely new writing brain, which is excellent because I'm not close to it at all. And I'm giving it, 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 the characters are the same, the plot's the same. And look, to be honest, my plotting has always been really good. <laughs> I have no issues with plot, never have had. But um, certainly my ability to draw a reader through a story with more emotional resonance and also character development and pace for thrillers has improved. And also after 12 arcane thrillers, I know my characters better. (laughs) So I'm editing for pace and I'm also doing things like, hmm, Morgan would not have said that. And you're kind of changing that, um, dialogue, cutting, cutting things down, basically, and and editing for pace. So it's definitely turning out to be slightly more work than I expected, (laughs) maybe a lot more work than I expected. But it will be, I guess, a third edition. I'm actually thinking of doing an NFT with this edition, and including every single page of hand edits is interesting, I think. So I'm thinking of doing limited uh, NFT editions of Stone of Fire with uh, the screenshots of the, or, you know, images of the edits. So um, that's something I'm thinking about it, about because I really think they will be truly original and it will be fascinating for those of you who want to see how an edit might work after so long. So I'm planning on doing the first three arcane books to uh, because once people get through three of the books they really tend to carry on through the series so I want to hopefully encourage more people to read on with much pacier writing. I also want to recommend James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which I've recommended several times over the years. It's one of those books that's good to revisit, particularly around this time of the year when you want to restart behaviour change. And I'm restarting behaviour change like um, my intermittent fasting practice. I'm also doing dry January, which and I really only had one moment where I was like, I really want to drink. And I had a dry, (laughs) a dry gin. So it's like no sin gin, non-alcoholic gin. Um, It was not what I wanted, but it at least got rid of the itch. But otherwise, it's 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 going quite well. Uh, but yes, in terms of James Clear's book, there are things he he says that are obvious, and so often we kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's obvious. Things like putting a habit chart on the fridge, and that's what I've done, and I'm ticking off my specific habits every day, and um, like so my. Um, dry. Have I been dry for the day? Yes. What's my intermittent? Have I done my intermittent fasting? How many hours? Um, And yeah, my jet lag has gone. I'm sleeping way better. And I just feel like, I just feel much more in control by revisiting those habits and just going, right, let's tighten everything up again. And yeah, I mean, (laughs) who knows whether these things will last, but at least I feel that the inflammation and the sort of the craziness of the New Zealand trip is is behind me now. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Anitha Krishnan said, thank you for the fantastic episode. William's words resonated with me. Quote, writing is like a task designed to confront your own feelings of self-doubt, end quote. For a while now, I've come to see writing as a sort of homecoming, a return to myself. The very act of sitting down day after day to write stories and then publish them for others to read have taught me more about myself than anything else I've engaged in. This is primarily why I write. I was thrilled to see your podcast guest speak in the same way. 
Thank you, Anitha. And I definitely, I feel the same way. It's what I just mentioned about um, my fiction. It's incredible what we learn through our own writing. And yes, we write so that other people will read our stories and our books and we can hopefully, some of us, make a living and all if that's what you want and all of these things. But at the end of the day, we go back to our writing because we find out more and we have those moments of, okay, this is this is something new in my brain, which is very cool. Also, lots of you sent me pictures of the Scottish Fold cat in augmented reality in your house or your garden, which was very cool. Imogen Clark says, OMG, that Scottish Fold thing is wild. And Marenia Vince sent a picture from her garden in Adelaide, Australia, which was cool. Lots of you sent that and uh, also Eileen Omosa sent her a picture of her real cat and of course I'm always happy to see pictures of real cats not just um, virtual cats <laughs> uh, so you can tweet me at the creative pen or email me joanna at the pen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the youtube channel I love to hear from you it makes this more of a conversation so today's show is sponsored by ScribeCount, recently referred to as the tool that pays for itself immediately by Mark Leslie Lefebvre. And from my perspective, I use ScribeCount to check book sales and revenue across ebook retailers so I can see how my books are doing in one report, which no other reporting service provides this easily. Whether you are Amazon exclusive or publishing wide, ScribeCount provides both the at-a-glance view you need for everyday sales tracking and quick, easy custom reporting to review series sell-through, advertising effectiveness and more. For those who are wide, ScribeCount pulls sales data from all the major platforms, as well as the aggregators Draft2Digital and Smashwords. It then compiles that data into one user-friendly interface to provide a great overall look at your library. Print sales in the UK, eBooks in South Africa, hardcovers in the US. It's all right here. What used to take hours can now be done in minutes. If you're exclusive to Amazon, ScribeCount has a dashboard for you as well, streamlined and focused on the things select authors need. Ranks, pre-orders and reviews are updated every 15 minutes. You can choose to see page reads displayed as a sum per book or automatically converted to full reads. And with IngramSpark and ACX coming soon, you'll be able to see all your sales in one place. Do you sell books through your own website or on a small platform, maybe at the latest conference or out of the trunk of your car? No problem. With ScribeCount's income and expense features, all that data can be entered to appear in your charts along with regular sales income. Sales numbers are great. Net income is even better. And for part-time authors, it's deeply satisfying to see sales increase month over month compared to your day job. So if you want to use the tool described by best-selling author Wayne Stinnett as quicker and more accurate than going to the source, simply log in, enable the platforms you want to see and let ScribeCount do the rest. Head on over to scribecount.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons, or many of you who've been supporting now for months and years. You are amazing. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last week, Stephen Brown, Connie Kodiker, Jack Arbor and Jacqueline Carlson. I really appreciate the support on Patreon. It demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue as we head into the 600s. <laughs> you can support the show with just a few dollars or whatever your currency is per month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer your questions. You also get money off my ebooks, audiobooks and courses. You can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Rishi Dastidar is a poet, journalist, copywriter and brand strategist, as well as the editor of The Craft, a guide to making poetry happen in the 21st century and co-editor of Too Young, Too Loud, Too Different, poems from Malika's Poetry Kitchen. We also both went to Mansfield College at the University of Oxford back in the 90s, so it's been a while. And welcome to the show, Rishi. Hi, good to see you. And yes, it has been a while. We're not going to dwell on how many years precisely, I hope. <laughs> but yeah, 
I know it seems crazy. And it's funny because I always ask, my first question is, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. And I still want to know that. But it's funny because I feel like I know you from a snapshot in time. And of course, Mm -hmm. things have moved on for both of us. But yeah, tell us about you and how you got into all of this. Yeah, so I arrived at college with the intention that I was going to do some form of writing once I'd left and I just had no real idea what that might be and so I thought writing writing journalism so I ran around and did a lot of student journalism I edited a student newspaper edited a student handbook and then after graduating did a bit of journalism here and there and that was fine and then I sort of found my way into copywriting for brands and making ads and that's yeah that's the thing that really got me interested and excited so that was all pottering along and then one day in about 2007 I had a proper damascene moment in a bookshop in London just off Oxford Street where I picked up a book called Ashes for Breakfast by a German poet called Der Grundlein and I started flicking through it and I'd never seen Um, language doing what it was doing on the page. It sounds really naive and strange to say it now, but I'd never read any contemporary poetry until that point. And I didn't know that you could do that with words on a page. I didn't know that you could not go to the right margin. I didn't know that you could leave lots of white spaces everywhere. And I bought the book there and then, and I was just completely entranced and completely hooked. And I knew right at that moment that that was the thing that I really wanted to write and so pretty much actually by the end of that week I'd signed up for a course at City Lit um, a college in London their introductory to poetry course and that's where the journey really started for me Um, and yeah I've been pursuing it and trying to get better as a poet ever since. Wow. I love that. I love that you said a Damascene moment, a sort of pulling the book off and your whole world was transformed. I really I love that. because yeah. We know books can do that. We know words can mm-hmm. do that. But coming back to you said about the, the words on the page and you didn't know language could do that on a page. So and of course, the layout on a page is only one aspect of poetry. So how does that shape the way you write? Are you thinking visually or are you thinking sounds? Uh, How do you think about poetry? I'm going to give an annoying poet answer, which is it depends on what you might be doing and what the language is doing at any given moment. Um, And different poets will take a different view on this. For me, it generally always starts with a combination of a phrase that is doing something unexpected to me, um, new to me, and that's generally sonic. And the poem will sort of emerge out of that. Yeah, the phrase will start to suggest itself. You maybe sort of free write into it. You maybe start to put other things together. But generally, it's arresting because it's also doing what? It's doing something that's visual. It's painting. It's painting uh, an image. So I'll give you an example. Last night, I was mucking around with a phrase that was something around like um, cardinal reminiscence bump. And okay, that's just a three word phrase, but you can hear within that, there's something interesting sonically going on and there's something interesting visually there as well. Yeah, the idea of memory bumping up against against itself. And so the poem will sort of emerge out of those twin impulses, the exploration of that phrase, where the sound leads you, where that image leads you. And you sort of have to get out of the way a bit as well, just in terms of allow the poem to emerge, see where it comes out. And once you have that draft, then you can get into more of those issues around, okay, what's it doing on the page? Is there enough space? Does it need to be condensed up into one unit so so it looks like like a sonnet? Or does it need to breathe down the page? Do I need to give it more space? And, you know, you're then into issues and thinking about things like, line breaks how do i roll roll sense over the line where do i need to give it space to breathe all those sorts of things but it's hard to deconstruct in the moment that you're actually writing it or creating it you just sort of have to let it happen and then it's only after that you can then start to go back and go ah okay so this needs to expand out more this needs to be condensed more so that that phrase that you mentioned there is that something that you heard or where do you even find mm. these phrases 
So yeah, I'm very magpie-like in terms of how I'm going around the world and how I'm engaging with stuff that I read and hear. So that particular phrase is probably a misremembering of something that I read in The New Yorker last week. I think an interview with Wes Anderson, the film director, Mm. and he was talking about some of the inspiration behind his new film, French Dispatch. And, you know, immediately, if something snags, you just have to write it down. Um, And even better if you write it down incorrectly, because you're taking it into a new realm. And, yeah, and it's not necessarily the case that a poem immediately emerges out of that phrase, but there's, but the subconscious bit of you is going, ah, there's something interesting there. I don't know what it is. I don't I might not know what it is for 20 years but I need to have it now so it's there in my bank of stuff to be um revisited later on and I will do that with headlines with taglines and ads with broken bits of commentary that you might hear in sports matches in news reports in people's conversations that you might overhear poets are great eavesdroppers we're all yeah never be around a poet for too long because our one ear is always on what someone else is saying because you know that there is something of interest going on there mm. and of course there's always what we're looking at in and around the world as well and trying to find ways of making the familiar unfamiliar or defamiliarizing it making it strange so you can actually get to a deeper or a different truth about it as well and now uh, you, you you mentioned they're writing things down. So I I think many I think writers are similar whatever form you write in. So mm. obviously I, I write uh, novels and short stories, but I write phrases down and lines and quotes in my Things app, uh, which is on yeah. my phone. But also I I use journals. Where do you write down things? Like how do you capture those ideas? Oh, I've, my system is so broken, frankly, in terms of <laughs> in terms of how it works. So, right now, the most immediate thing is I have a little list app on my phone, and that tends to be the first place where things get get scribbled down. Um, you know, if I think that something longer is emerging in the moment, I will move it to the notes app on the phone, and that will have a lot of stuttering first drafts on it. There is a sort of working notebook that always comes around with me and is currently in my jacket pocket. And then for stuff that I know is I'm not going to do anything with right now, I have a bright orange notebook, sort of moleskinny type thing, which sits somewhere, and that's my sort of... Um, spark book type thing where all those sort of um errant phrases that don't have a home yet or ideas just sort of get parked so that's there and then i've got a drawer in my desk where fragments that could coalesce into bigger ideas and sort of sketches of poems or sketches of other projects they tend to get shoved in there and then there's some weird sort of triage system that happens in as ideas gather along with each other and things will get pulled out of the drawer and put to the one side of the desk and gradually out of all that something bigger starts to starts to cohere together but yeah it yeah I, I frankly I've horrified myself just trying to describe that <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess um I mean you probably find this too I write all this stuff down and then so often what I'm actually working on has no relationship to the stuff I might have written mm-hmm. down and then I might discover years later like I discovered the idea f- for my first novel which I thought I'd had it, I'd had that idea in 2009 I found it in a journal from around 2003 so I'd had the idea mm-hmm. before forgotten the idea and then it had come back in my subconscious somehow so I guess can we trust that the important things will come back even if we've lost them (laughs) I think so I think so but I think it's also a case of trusting that they will come back when they when the time is right for them to come back and that you as a writer have sufficient by way of skill ability stamina you know desire to actually get that idea out there I, I think I'm always more worried if it feels like I'm not coming up with ideas. That's when the, that's when it's like, ooh, you know, has the well run dry? And you know, and you go through periods like that where nothing is necessarily firing your interest or whatever. But gradually, you know, it does cycle background. But yeah, I mean, you know, especially for a poet, I, you know, planning for a poet is almost an anathema. I really don't know what the books look like until until there's a certain sense that yeah you're yeah you've nearly got everything that you need 
and it can start to cohere in, into a bundle that looks like 60, 70 pages that, yeah, that starts to talk, you know, where the poems start to talk to each other. But yeah, that's not a rational process at all. That is very much a subconscious emotional process more than anything else. Well, you did just mention there about a bit of a worry if you aren't coming up with ideas. And we are, as we speak, we're still in a pandemic and a lot of people have struggled. I mean, I, I've i struggled because mm. I get a lot of ideas from my travels. All my books are about yeah. my travels. And so my well run, you know, ran quite dry. <laughs> and it, it, that was the first time I'd been worried about it really in, in the last decade. So how how do you deal with those dry periods? How do you kickstart things? Do you actively go looking for stuff? I can do. I think it's more, you know, I, I think it's, it's slightly a delicate balance of actually, is there emotional energy and bandwidth? So a lot of the, over the last 18 months, two years, you know, there it hasn't felt as fertile or productive a time just in part because it's been so busy at my day job. And so it, it's not felt that there has been much space for things to leak in. Um, like you moving around, going to different cities, there's a lot of where my inspiration and observations come from. So that has been hard. But, yeah, there is always reading to be done. There is always, you know, learning from other writers to be done. And so even knowing that, okay, I might not be writing as much right now, but it's a chance to actually catch up on so many great books that have been published over god knows how many years and you know that generally the more that you read the more that you will get fired up again because you're you know you're seeing what other people are doing how they're experimenting how they're addressing different subject matter and again the process is not direct but someone will do something and you lodge that away and go okay that's an interesting way of attacking that subject or okay, that's an interesting way of um, tweaking that form. I hadn't thought of that. And so even when it's not necessarily coming from you, you know that you know that reading as your superpower means that you you can always get something from that will benefit you later on. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then <laughs> this might be a difficult question, but when do you know when uh, a poem is finished? Like how do you know? yes, this is finished? Because I feel like the tinkering of language is something that poets enjoy so much. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, the cliche you know, being that a poem is never finished, it's only ever abandoned. Um, it's it's different for every poet. And, yeah, and it's, again, yeah, I, I can characterise it no better than you have to have your spidey sense working and you will and yeah and it sounds cod mystical nonsense to say it but the poem will generally tell you when it is finished and the best that i can characterize it as is that every poem has a certain type of energy and what you're trying to do through the drafting process is maintain that energy and make sure that it the poem achieves what it wants to achieve within the space that you've given it and there is very definitely a point with an overtinker where you can take out one word too many, add one word too many, you know, change a piece of syntax or punctuation, and that energy starts to leak away. And so that's what I'm always looking for. Has it? Does it now feel inert on the page to me, or does it still have a sort of liveliness and a spring to it that makes me still want to read it? And the frustrating thing is, you can't really formularize that. Yeah. You know, Sometimes it will take 17 drafts to get there. Sometimes you can be done in four, five. And so you just have to be alive and alert to that. And of course, that's just your judgment. I'm very fortunate to work with a brilliant editor, um, Joan Kamena, Nine Arches Press. And yeah, you you end up relying a lot on yeah the, that judgment as well, because they're coming to it cold. Um, they're not going to be as close to it as as you are and so they will be able to see things which are screamingly obvious in terms of that need to be changed that are wrong as well so yeah the process is never just wholly reliant on you but it's yeah it's like 90 percent reliant on you and you have to develop that sense of judgment that the thing is done 
Yeah, and then you mentioned a, a, a bit ago about the 60, 70 pages, which is when you have a collection, I guess, and, and poems start yes. to talk to each other somehow. And and uh, I got your poetry collection ticker tape and uh, yes. was, was having a look at that. And obviously you you play with these different forms on the page. I got mm-hmm. it as an ebook, and as an ebook, we can yeah. Kind, we we can't control the look on, of the page as much as you can in a physical yeah. form. So, what's your process of of publication? Because a, a lot of people listening are both independent authors, but also have traditional mm-hmm. contracts and things like that. And we all do different uh, formats. So, how does your yeah. publishing process work? So, I, I've reached a stage in my relationship with Jane where. I trust her implicitly in terms of the feedback and the steer that she gives me. So I will always listen to her. Generally, I will have a loose idea in my head in terms of a theme, an arc, an idea that a book might want to want to carry. And then it's a process of roughly pulling things together, you know, that might speak to that. And I do that in a in quite a quick flurry and then I email that very rough first manuscript to Jane very hastily and just basically saying take it off my hands I don't want to see it again and because the lead times in poetry are so long and slow there's a lot of time for things to basically sit and mature and wait so if I give you an indication we're working on my third um, book at the moment and that's not due to come out until 2023 wow so yeah (laughs) So, yeah, so we've got a lot of time just to actually play about with stuff, take poems out, reorder stuff, rewrite. But we agreed that we're not going to touch it for a year. So that the manuscript is just sitting and waiting. So when we do come to it next year, we're going to attack it with a fresh vigour and come to it cold. And so that's an indication of just one editorial relationship. The good thing about poetry is, of course, is that especially now, the means of getting out there and getting your work out there and getting to market are so much more wild, uh, wide and wildly varied than they ever have been. So I work in a relatively traditional manner directly with an independent publisher, you know, based up in Coventry. It's an unagented relationship. So I was fortunate in that I sent Jane some poems and she liked them so much she wanted to publish the book, which became Tip and Tape, and we've developed the relationship from there. Um, you know, there are plenty of other people that work in different ways that, you know, go to web as their first port of call, self-publishing, maybe using social media as another means, using YouTube as another means of getting work out there. So there's, you know, you know, how you publish and how you get to market is really sort of ultimately dependent on what it is that you want to achieve and what you feel the best form for your poems are. There are plenty of po- poets writing for whom actually a book is not even close to being the end goal because the poem is the poem and actually standing up performing it it hitting the air that's the important thing and the book is an afterthought there are poets like me who because we've come up through what's called the page tradition the book as the object has always been the ultimate goal and so you know we work towards um, that end instead so it, it is sort of dependent on you as poet to have an idea of what it is that you might want to do and where you might want to take your work as well. And uh, before we started recording, you said about that you do spoken word and you do go and perform in order to sell books, which I thought was really interesting. So tell us about the performance side of being a poet. Yeah, so especially in British poetry, there's always been this sort of divide between you know, people who've come up through what's called the page tradition, so people who've published in magazines, probably you know, studied creative writing or English or something like that, and people who've come up through what's known as the performance or the spoken word, and there's a historic overlay of race and class in, the, in that divide as well, which is probably far too complex to get into right now. But broadly speaking, you know, and it, this goes back to you know the poet's route as the travelling troubadour. You know, going round, um, bringing bringing lyric and song to village and village as you go round in the Middle Ages. But broadly speaking, e- you know, even if you're a poet who is much more literary in approach and bent, and you know, you know, wants to be known for the books, 
the number of books that you sell is so much smaller than compared to almost any other type of literature that's published that you just cannot rely on publishing a book and it being in bookshops and that's it you have to go out and meet people and you have to go out and read the work and so you have to go and organize readings visit bookshops visit poetry nights basically say yes to whoever will have you and so you have to learn some skills and some aspects of performance even if you aren't necessarily don't call yourself a performance poet you have to learn those things of being able to project being able to hold a room being able to you know you know, very crudely know how to use a microphone without you know, without breaking people's eardrums. And so there is a level at which you have to have some degree of stagecraft, some degree of, I know, you know, how to construct a set list. I know how to take people from A to B in a given moment. I know how to make 10 minutes of time work. Even if you don't think of yourself as someone who is comfortable or natural on stage, and you know, I've certainly found that that's out of everything. That's been the aspect of craft that I've had to learn the most over the last couple of years. Because you know, I'm acutely aware as well that you know, people are coming to a poetry night you know, out of a welter of other entertainment options that they could be doing that night. They could be, you know, in watching MasterChef or watching the football or something on Netflix. And so the fact that people have chosen to spend time with poets and poetry, there's an element to which you have to give them a degree of show, but that doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, insubstantial. It can still be deep and serious, but there is that respect that you have to give the audience by turning up and giving your work the respect it deserves as well when it hits the air so not mumbling not keeping your eyes down on stage that sort of stuff Mm. and have you learned that through just practice and doing things or have you done courses and things on on performance it's mostly through learning as doing it sinking (laughs) sinking or swimming at whatever it might be um I've yeah I've done a couple of courses to work on stuff like my breath and just to you know, feel more comfortable projecting and and being able to take control of a stage. I'm also fortunate that you know as, um, as, as part of Malika's Kitchen, that collective, Malika, Book of the Founder, Roger Robinson, the other founder, they're two of our great poets, but they're two great performers as well. And so I've worked with Roger and Malika, you know in the past to actually you know, build up my confidence in terms of how to take hold of the stage. And there was a reading that um, I did maybe getting on for about seven, eight years ago. And Malika and Roger were directing that. It was at the South Bank. And that was basically a two-hour masterclass for me in terms of how to take take command of a stage for a you know 300-seat audience. And some of the things that Roger told me that day, I still use... Yeah, when I'm preparing a performance, just in terms of keying into what I need to key into emotionally to be able to then transfer that to the audience, you know, how I need to hold someone's eye in the audience, how I need to find someone to direct the performance to for the evening, whether it's five minutes, whether it's half an hour, all those things, you know, you have to have at least a consideration of um but yeah it's definitely something that i've mostly learned on the job and you know i've had horror shows i've had you know gigs where one person has turned up and my goodness <laughs> that's a tough night for all of us concerned you know i've done my time standing on tables in pubs when you know the football's been on and trying to get attention that way so yeah everyone has to go through that sort of apprenticeship you know without fail and you either tune into the, the absurdity of it and run with it or you don't i think <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I guess I, I've always remembered you as someone with good humour and an ability <laughs> to laugh. And uh, I do, my memories of you are, are laughing. It might have been because we were in the bar so often. But <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think, I, I think I, you're right. I think, Sorry, yeah, carry on. I, I mean, yeah, no, there is something as serious as poetry is, and as much as it does change lives, and as much as it is you know, an investigation of language, doing different things under pressure and sound, there is an inherently absurd aspect to it as well. Of course, there is. I think, and you have to lean into that, uh, lean into that a bit, um, because 
yeah, I, very few of us are going to be geniuses at the level of Heaney or Hughes, right? For the, you know, for the rest of us who are toiling in their in their shadows, you might as well enjoy it. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Yeah, and that's not to detract from the seriousness of the work or the seriousness of what you are saying. But I think you want to, as much as you want to move the audience, you want to also leave you know, leave them with their hearts a little lighter as well. And I think laughter is a useful tool in your armoury to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially laughing at yourself when things are <laughs> difficult, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think we all, we all need to do. And so, I mean, you mentioned they're obviously performing in person, but how can poets and other writers embrace the audio and video opportunities available now online? I mean, especially with the pandemic, have, have you been doing yeah. a lot more online stuff in terms of multimedia? <laughs> Yes. So come March 2020, it was very acute in terms of just the juddering way in which everything moved online. And I felt that very much because my second book was due to come out the week that we went into lockdown. So my launch party, all my, all the gigs that I had lined up for that, that first couple of weeks all cancelled. And if, you know, if fortunate and if producers were agile enough some shifted online but we were very much feeling our way and that spirit of experimentation sort of carried through so i did things like um on the night of publication i did a 20 minute set on periscope yeah on on twitter via periscope just literally holding my phone up and um just you know barking down that to the 50 odd people who who wanted to spend thursday night (laughs) being shouted at by a man in a crown um and yeah, and the last eighteen months have seen just sort of iterations of doing that sort of thing. And, and yeah, and I think you've seen that people very rapidly have found ways of working that work for them. It's been very beneficial in terms of accessibility for people, both in terms of the fact that you can now provide captions and the fact that you can yeah get audiences, but also perform for audiences in a much bigger locale than you ever could before so i've done gigs for american audiences which would have been a lot lot harder even three years ago just in terms of not having to travel and so you're suddenly opened up to a different thing um but yeah but performing down the line does bring its own set of challenges the i think the energy that you need to actually convey the personality that you might want to project down a zoom call is actually a lot greater than you you might anticipate than if you were in the room. And so I find online readings actually more draining than offline readings. And the learning how to actually make the most of the tech and the platform has been hard. And some people are better at it than others. You know, even things like, do you actually invest in ring lights? Can you actually you know, make sure that your laptop is set up in, you know, at the right height so that your eye line is level as opposed to looking up or looking down. Things like that, people have had to learn on the go. And people are getting better at it as well. But I think with all these things, the best thing that you can do is, as ever, say yes to stuff and then work out how to do it as you go along. And not being scared of this stuff and just go, look, ultimately, what's the worst that happens? You read some poems into, you know, you know, into a Zoom call, you know, some people send some emoticons in the you know, emojis in the chat and then on you go. It, it's not as scary as it first feels, I think, is the main thing. And then, yeah, like everything, you can buff it up to a sheen as much as you want as well. But the more important thing is to try and to embrace it. Oh, no, I think I think that's great. And I do agree with you that I, I think people didn't realise how much energy you do mm. expend through a screen because you're still yeah. trying to project. In fact, you, you have to project yeah. energy through the screen in the same way that you mm-hmm. would in person. And I think uh, a lot more people understand that now because people are like, oh, I just yeah. can't do Zoom calls all day. It's so tiring. So <laughs> I feel yeah. like nor- yeah. normal people in quotation marks now yeah. understand this as well as we do. <laughs> Yes, yeah, absolutely. There's something about most performances happening in a different space. So you're going somewhere, you have that time to prepare, you have that time to get to that headspace. As opposed to, say, in my case, I'm working from my study and then I maybe have five minutes and then I have to try and get into the performance headspace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's a weird sort of decompression. And 
yeah I, and yeah if i could do things again i think i would yeah be a lot stricter with that okay if i am performing tonight online i need to treat it as i would have done a physical gig and so stop work earlier so i have time to decompress from that so i can then build the energy up to do the performance again as opposed to ah it's seven o'clock need to log off the work email yeah and jump onto the zoom call these are things that we've only discovered as we've had to do them basically but hopefully it leads to much more by way of performance opportunities and you know differing differing modes of doing things as well i really do hope that more producers will make more events hybrid i'd love to be able to do more live in-person readings but with people dialing in from all different parts of the world so you actually have this lovely mix of you know people and voices in the room but elsewhere around the world that seems yeah yeah that that seems like one of the things that we should take away from the last two years that you can expand the possibilities here. Mm, absolutely. And then I wanted to come back on, uh, you talked about the poetry collection, uh, Malaika's Poetry Kitchen. And uh, I mm-hmm. love this idea of a writer's collective, which I feel is not so common in perhaps the longer form mm. book space. So tell yeah, us about yeah. that group and, and how you work together. So, so Malaika started kitchen uh, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the collective actually so hence why the book came out and we've been doing lots of events as we can over the last um last couple of months to celebrate that fact but when malika started writing in the yeah back in 2000 2001 one of the things she quickly felt was that there was um a definite lack of support for writers like her who were just starting, but also in particular writers of colour who were just starting as well. And the poetry establishment at the time was very sniffy, very snobby, and had effectively placed poets of colour in that box, which is, okay, you're just stand-up performers, spoken word people. You know, you don't have a sense of craft on the page. So, yeah, we're not particularly that interested in helping you. We're not particularly that interested in helping you advance what you're writing and how you're writing it. And basically, Kitchen started from Malika and Roger wanting to change that and in a very DIY way saying, okay, we're going to set up something that means that we can help ourselves. And it started in Malika's house in Brixton. Yeah, Malika and Roger invited a couple of other people, yeah, a couple of other poets over who were looking for a similar thing. And it, it's grown from there. Basically, yeah, each week, one of them would organise some sort of workshop exercise where they'd read, they'd work through different poems, they'd bring drafts, they'd workshop those. And from those small roots, it's just grown and grown and grown to the point at which poets from around the world come and give masterclasses to people in the group. Um, And and so many brilliant poets who we sort of read now who are winning awards and prizes have come through and been members of the collective at the point. It's always been a free-floating thing. So you come and you're a member for a bit and then you move on or you're sort of a more long-standing member like I might be because I've been around for sort of like eight, nine years or so now. The key thing has always been though mutual support and the idea that we all learn from each other. But crucially, we're not trying to impose our tastes on each other or we're all trying to, you know, we're all trying to write in a similar voice if you look at the book and when you read the book you'll see that of the 70 odd poems in there not one sounds like the other Um, which is just a testament to the fact that what we're there to do when we're around the table is make everyone's work better and help them achieve what they're trying to achieve in the work but we're not trying to impose our own aesthetic standards on it and through it people have developed you know their skills in you know, in leading workshops, developing their performance skills, just developing their confidence and their ability to inhabit the position that say that says, I am a writer, I'm a poet, which is often quite a scary thing for people to actually take on as mm. well. And I think there is a practice, you know, and I think why is it, you know, why is it that there's more sort of poetry, you know, help in that form? I, I think there is a practical thing here. You know, in two hours, we can get through a lot of work. We can get through a lot of people's poems as opposed to 
you know, as opposed to you know, looking at longer pieces over a longer term. I think we have more agility and flu- fluidity when we when thinking about that as opposed to thinking about big chunks of prose. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, what the poetry establishment was like back in the early 2000s. Do you think things have changed now? I mean, in one way, we see some things changing in some ways, but do you feel that it's it's changed and is more open now? Yes. Yeah, it, it has. If I give you an example of how dire things were, the Arts Council commissioned um, Bernadine Everisto, in fact, to write a report on the state of British poetry back in 2005. And what she found was that only 1% of the collections published in the previous year had been written by writers of colour. Yeah, and yeah, which was, you know, in terms of representation was just uh, a a stunning, stunning fact. Just one, wow, you know, just gobsmacking. And so since that point, there has been a lot of, uh, money and effort put into bringing forward and bringing through writers uh, writers of colour, and I've been a beneficiary of some of those schemes. Uh, it's like cards on the table there, but what the, I think what there has been over the last fifteen years, in particular, is an acceptance that if your conception of what passes for poetry in Britain is one that is very white middle class university educated you're missing out on the wide richness of what is going on and yeah and to the point at which now we're seeing people yeah writers of color winning awards getting their dues in terms of wider coverage as well so roger robinson winning the t.s Eliot a couple of years ago malika won the forward prize for best single poem a couple of years ago Kayo Chingongli being nominated for Forward and T.S. Eliot prizes. So, you know, and, you know, I should stress, these aren't just mere tokenistic representations. These are brilliant pieces of work coming through that are finding their readers, winning the plaudits because they are so good. But there is 15 to 20 years of graft that underlies that success and opening doors battering down doors when they won't be opened and i say to people now that if you are writing a history of british poetry you can't tell it credibly now without telling that story of how black and asian writers have contributed massively to it over the last 20 25 years so yeah i'm positive that there has been change there's always plenty more to be done but i think yeah i i, I feel like the trend is you know is going in the right direction certainly that is great and good to hear and that poetry collection is too young too loud too different so if people are interested so tell us where people can find you and everything you do online <laughs> well, I mostly live on social media, so Twitter is normally the best place to find me because that is where I hang out and that is where I share most of my stuff. So I'm at Beta Rish, so at uh, B E T A R I S H. Um, yeah, and where else do I pop up? I write occasionally for the Guardian, so you'll sometimes find me in the find me there doing poetry reviews. I do stuff for the Rialto magazine on occasion. Rialto is one of our best poetry magazines in the UK, so that's always worth a dive in when it comes out, which is three times a year. I'm sometimes lurking on Instagram, but uh, yeah, I, I, that's mostly cat pictures, so you might not get as much poetry. <laughs> um, uh, but, from- but also. So tell us the the names of your books so that people who want to buy your books can get them. Oh, well, that's very kind of the invitation to plug myself. But yes, as as you mentioned, Ticker Tape was my debut and that came out in 2017. And then my second book, Saffron Jack, came out in March 2020. uh, And they're both published by Nine Arches Press. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Rishi. That was great. Not at all. Lovely to speak to you again. So I hope you found the interview with Rishi interesting and I enjoyed hearing about his magpie idea habits. I do something similar with my Things app and then various journals along the way. But there's always a process for capturing thoughts, but then that almost magical creative spark puts it all together into something new. And at the end of the day, as I mentioned before, the interview, that's probably why we 
continue to write for those moments when we create something new and we can say, I made that. That's certainly why I'm still going. I measure my life by what I create. So next week, I'm talking to Catelyn Duncan about how to take back your book, an author's guide to rights reversion and publishing on your terms. So a publishing and intellectual property rights discussion coming next week. Happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>